Hello and welcome to Let's Talk SciComm, a podcast by the University of Melbourne Science Communication Teaching Team. I'm Associate Professor Jen Martin and my wonderful co-host is Dr Michael Wheeler and we believe that science isn't finished until it's communicated. Hello, everybody, and very warm welcome to another episode of Let's Talk SciComm. I'm Jen, and as always, I'm joined by my wonderful friend, Michael. Hello, Michael. Hey, Jen. It's great to be here as always, and I'm very pumped for today's episode. Well, I'm pretty excited, Michael, because I'm very, very thrilled to introduce you and all of our listeners to today's guest, although I'm pretty confident that most of our listeners will have heard of him before, because today we are incredibly lucky to be joined by one of the most well-known and well-respected climate scientists in Australia, and of course, all around the world. Welcome, Professor David Caroli. Uh, well, Jen and Michael, it's a pleasure to be on this program and, you know, really happy to be involved because, you know, I'm passionate about science communication in general and also about climate literacy. And it's only through effective science communication that we can improve the climate literacy of all the audiences uh, in Australia and around the world. 100% you are speaking our language, David. So before we start picking your brains, I feel like we do need to set the stage for anyone who isn't familiar with your absolutely stellar career. Now, you recently retired after an incredible 45 years. And of course, we can't wait to explore at least some components of that in a moment. But I do just want to give our listeners a sense of the impact of your career. And I think a fitting way to do that is to talk about your retirement symposium, which we gather absolutely went off. So first of all, the fact that you had a retirement symposium where 300 odd people attended or tuned in, that's a pretty clear indication that you might be someone pretty important, I reckon. <laughs> Look, whether I'm important or not, I consider myself just an ordinary person as a scientist who's had a long career in climate science and sort of learned that if I want to be effective as a climate scientist or as any scientist, I've got to learn how to communicate the science well. Mm. You mentioned 300 odd people. I don't think the people were odd. I think they were normal people. <laughs> and I try to be careful about language a lot of the time. And that's one example of where words in a certain place mean very different things. And I've been very conscious of that when I get involved in science communication is that a word out of place can change the context or change the framing. But look, back to the retirement symposium, I have been aware in terms of a whole range of, if you like, retirement events, that it can be like a wake that you hold for someone after they've passed away as a celebration. But I didn't want to wait till I passed away because I doubt that I could listen to it then. Yeah. I reckon it's much more important to do the celebration of someone's life when they retire. So I organized it myself. I had uh, 13 speakers plus myself, 10 minutes each. It was great. Everyone I asked to speak spoke straight away. And it was a fantastic celebration. I probably should have got a swollen head, but but I 
didn't because I still had to worry about giving the last talk. And the last talk was <laughs> fun because what I didn't talk about was any of the science that I had done, but more about what I had learned from my career about coping with, if you like, the positive things. And there were plenty of those, but also the negative things. And coping mm. with the negative things in one's career can be really important. And I think is critically important in thinking about how you, you know, you, you get over the the troughs in one's career. And I have what many people in the retirement session described as a positive attitude to almost everything and a smiling face. And as you can see now, I'm smiling now. <laughs> well, look, David, we are certainly going to come to that because we do obviously want to talk about some of the many challenges that you face as well as your optimism. But I do just want to say congratulations on what an incredible event and celebrating your career. And I absolutely stand corrected. I, I certainly do not believe that the people there were odd. But I think the fact that you did have speakers from all around the world covering different aspects of your career from a nervous maths undergraduate through to one of Australia's most vocal and influential climate scientists. And I want our listeners to know that over that time, you've contributed to almost every area of weather and climate science. I know you've authored more than 250 publications. You've supported 46 students, both masters and PhD students. You've helped bring more than $82 million of funding to Australian climate change research. And you're also part of the really revered group of IPCC authors who shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore in 2007. So that's, you know, we want to talk about all of those things today. And most importantly for the context of our listeners is that you're credited with really bringing climate science into the public and political conversation. And your past student and our wonderful colleague, Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft, who listeners of this podcast have heard from a number of times, described you as indefatigable and noted it, that we read her piece about you and she said it would be understandable that your impressive accolades would make people feel intimidated. But instead, we quote Lyndon, she said, but such is the irrepressible magic of David Caroli. He is just as present and himself, whether he is giving testimony for a case whether he's on Q&A, whether he's speaking at a sustainable film festival in Tatong with a population of 287 people or just chatting to you at a tram stop. So what a, what a celebration. And I think, David, we would like to go back quite early in your career to start our conversation. Tell us about your motivation for getting into maths in the first place. Well, I was what I thought was a perfectly, you know, normal sort of student. I went to a government-funded school, didn't have an opportunity to go to a private school, didn't want to go to a private school. It was close. I could walk to school. But what I liked at school and what I found easy at school was the science subjects, but particularly maths and physics. And I always liked that stuff, but at about the same time, sort of middle of secondary school, I got an invitation or I had a bunch of friends and one of them was involved in the Boy Scouts. And I used to go out camping and hiking and doing sort of things with the Boy Scouts. They got me interested in outdoor activities and I loved that. I loved going to the beach. My parents encouraged me both to go sailing and to go 
get involved in the Boy Scouts, but we also used to go on uh, on holidays to various interesting places, national parks. So lots of memories of being interested in the environment from when I was very young. Finished high school and went to the closest university. Decided to go to Monash University because it was the new university in <laughs> Melbourne at the <laughs> time. Having shifted from being the, I guess it was the site for a mental institution or a mental hospital uh, prior to it becoming a university. Some people would argue that universities and mental hospitals aren't that different, but I disagree with that (laughs) perspective. It's all about language, remember? Uh, It is indeed all about language. So I went to the university because I was interested in science and because Melbourne was the staid older university, but (laughs) Monash was the new one. Admittedly, I'm talking about 1973 when I started, and that's a long (laughs) time ago. But I had a wonderful opportunity there to study, you know, sort of maths and physics, standard sorts of majors, but also to join the Monash Bushwalking Club, which allowed me to get away with friends from the Bushwalking Club out into regional Victoria. And I did everything possible to get involved in trips to the bush as much as I could. And that meant bushwalking, cross-country skiing, rock climbing, caving, canoeing, What else? Oh, and I continued with some of the sailing as well. So all of these sorts of activities. But what I couldn't quite work out was how I was going to fit my maths and physics (laughs) into helping me with my interests in outdoor activities. And it was actually on one of the bushwalking trips when I was on the bluff near Mount Buller in sort of central northern, well, the Alpine area in Victoria. And there were clouds forming at the edge of a very steep cliff, which is what the bluff is has on it. And the air, as it was rising, was forming clouds right on the edge of this cliff as I looked over. And I thought, gee, that's really interesting. I wonder how that's working. And of course, at the time, I suddenly realized that there was a sort of research group within applied mathematics that was offering undergraduate courses and honours courses and an honours program in what is called geophysical fluid dynamics, the fluid dynamics of the ocean and the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I ended up shifting from third year applied maths, computing and physics to doing a final year, my honours year in geophysical fluid dynamics or in meteorology. And it was essentially a complete shift. What I realised was understanding the atmosphere and the ocean or the fluid dynamics of these was a great use of maths and physics, but it was also a topic that my mother could understand, (laughs) that I could relate to the average person in the street. Having finished my honours degree, I shifted to doing, well, applying for a scholarship to do graduate study overseas in the United Kingdom. And I was lucky enough to be funded by the Shell Oil Company to do postgraduate studies at the University of Reading. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very lucky to go and study with Brian Hoskins, who actually was a speaker at the Retirement Symposium, but now he's Sir Brian Hoskins, knighted for his contributions to understanding of meteorology and climate. 
within the United Kingdom. And I was his second PhD student. He was really young and I was lucky that he took me on Mm. and took me on on a project that essentially opened a lot of doors for me. So, David, I'm just curious about how your personality plays into all of this, because, you know, obviously it's a big step to go overseas, but you've been described as an introvert, a shy guy. You don't necessarily have to talk to a lot of people or communicate a lot if you're just focusing on maths and theoretical stuff. But what you're talking about there is kind of a shift to then practical applications of maths where you can explain it to you know people like your mother and then making a you know an overseas trip so is this the start of maybe shy david coming out of his shell a little bit look it might be if one looked in hindsight although when i went overseas i was still if you like very much what i think was a shy somewhat introverted nerdy guy <laughs> and, you know, but in some sense, I was willing to take risks, willing to do things that I thought would get me into interesting places. And so what I was trying to do then was not so much communicate the science, just meet different people, explore different places and to use the opportunities to broaden my interests and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was much later, I think, that I realized that the communication of the science was what was critically important, not just for me to make friends, but certainly what I was even then doing. And again, it's perhaps in hindsight that I'd never lived away from home till I went to the United Kingdom. But that was a great opportunity because what I wanted to do was to learn as much as I could about effectively England. I had an all expenses paid three year educational opportunity and holiday opportunity to spend (laughs) three years in England. And the channel was really easy to get a ferry across or a plane across. And so I visited, I don't know how many times I crossed the channel, but it was a lot of times. Every holiday was going to, you know, Europe or something like that. And I have to admit, and I'm not sure we've talked about this before, but I met my wife, who was another English young lady, on a skiing (laughs) trip in Italy while I was a graduate student. What a lovely Lovely. place to meet. Well, yes, and we are still married and have recently celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. Wow, congratulations. You you must have uh, impressed with your skiing skills then, David. (laughs) No, I think it was picking her up when she fell over from the snow, and I was always there to pick her up whenever she fell over. About 20 years ago, I went back to the 50th anniversary of the meteorology department at the Mm -hmm. University of Reading. Some of the people who knew me and had taught me as a graduate student, a few people said to me, you're not the same communicator that we knew (laughs) as a graduate student, because as a graduate student, I was petrified of giving public talks. I could not Mm. sleep the day before I had to give a public talk, but I still stumbled over almost all of it and was worried and it was completely different. 20 years later when I went back and and it was learning the skills and having practice to allow science communication to be a more normal part. My PhD supervisors basically, and in my first job in Australia, encouraged me just to write good science papers. That was all that was important. Write more science papers. Don't worry about 
the communication of them, except in the papers. Mm. I mean, I think that's still a message that people are told today, and that's one of the reasons why we're so passionate about what we do in helping scientists and science students to develop their skills, because often it's not actually rocket science, it's just practice. It's just having having these kind of cycles of, well, I'm going to practice and I'm going to get some feedback and I'm going to try again. And obviously you're reflecting on decades of the practice that you've, that you've done to get to the point that now you're such a skilled and competent public speaker. But, but David, obviously we're really keen today to chat with you about your experiences of communicating with non-scientific audiences but I do before we get there I do want to reflect on the fact that you've done some incredibly important communication within the scientific community most notably your involvement in the IPCC reports and particularly thinking about the fourth report so just for listeners who aren't familiar or feel like they should know what these are because they hear them on the news all the time but aren't quite sure, can you just describe for us, please, what the IPCC reports are and the importance of them in our increasing understanding of climate change science? Yeah, so this could be a one-hour presentation. Or a, <laughs> no, you don't get an hour, sorry. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, I, I will give the uh, a little longer than the elevator pitch, but of the order of the one-minute overview because I think it is really important. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up in 1988 because of concerns of governments all around the world about the potential impacts of climate change, but the science of climate change was still somewhat uncertain. And it was critically important that it was the governments who initiated this, and it was set up through the United Nations and the World Meteorological Organization. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is not a bunch of scientists. It's a bunch of representatives, Mm -hmm. one representative per country from each of the more than 180 members of the United Nations and the members of the World Meteorological Organization. And so effectively, it's run under UN processes. And what it does is it commissions reports or assessments. And it's critically important to understand that these assessments are required to be policy relevant in terms of the broad interests of climate and climate variability and climate change, but they're required to be policy neutral. They Mm. never have any recommendations. And so it's tough for a scientist or anyone who's trying to write a report and see action on what they consider to be critically important issues, to write a report which is an assessment. And an assessment is quite different from a review. But that assessment process is aiming to provide an update on the all the peer-reviewed published scientific literature in the topic that they're covering. In this case, climate change science, climate change impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, and also solutions to climate change. And consider all the peer-reviewed journal publications, not just in one topic, but an enormous range of topics. Mm -hmm. The reports are voluminously long. The first one was in (laughs) 1990, second one in 1995, third one in 2001. That was the first one that I was really involved in as a coordinating lead author, as a chapter lead author or coordinating lead author, one of the two leads. The fourth assessment report was in 2007. And you'll notice the time between them is getting a little bit further apart from five years to six years to seven years. The most recent one was released in 
2021 and 22, which is the sixth assessment report just released last year. I've been involved in some way, in fact, in all of them initially is just what's called a contributing author. The first one I was a coordinating lead author was in 2001. And look, they are an amazingly difficult, time consuming and valuable mm -hmm. report because they are comprehensive. They are reviewed multiple times by experts in a much more comprehensive review process than any scientific journal paper that gets published. Mm. They're reviewed twice by experts and twice by governments and every single review comment has to be answered mm. in writing and that answer and the comments are made public. And it's a really interesting process. The reason that it's robust is because it's done in an open way. Anyone can nominate to be an author. Anyone can be selected. They usually need support from the governments. And in addition, the reviews can be done by anyone who has published at least one peer-reviewed journal paper in the topic of relevance. So, David, you mentioned being involved in a couple of those reports there, and the one in 2007 that won the, the Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore, I mean, I think that's pretty incredible. I'm just curious to know, why were the authors of that particular report, including yourself, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize? Because they were nominated. And, you know, in many awards, what is required is a nomination of the award winner or a candidate for the award and things like that, I think there had been recognition that climate change was a growingly important issue and the strength of the conclusions about the role of human activity and human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases and their role in climate change were getting stronger and stronger in each of the assessment reports. And the conclusions in the 2007 report was basically essentially that there is no doubt that climate change is happening. The phrase that was used was climate change is unequivocal. Yep. Mm. Observed warming of the global climate system is unequivocal. There's no doubt in that. The cause then was it was more, was very likely that human caused emissions of greenhouse gases have been the major cause of global warming over the previous 50 years. Again, those are very strong conclusions. Compared with mm. the assessment in the forced report, which basically was along the lines of the climate system is warming, but we can't actually unravel the causes and we can't link human-related emissions of greenhouse gases to the observed warming. But it's likely that global warming will continue in the future due to human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases. That's a much more, how would I say, ambiguous and airy-fairy conclusion than mm. the other ones, particularly in 2007. So I think the reason for the success of the nomination in 2007 was the growing importance within the scientific arenas and the peer-reviewed journals, as well as in governments, the concerns about climate change. But it's also important to understand that one of the things that the IPCC has to do is to have consensus in all mm. its conclusions and all its reports from every single government present mm. and the approval of whatever statement is reached in the summaries for policymakers, the short summaries that are released from all the scientists. 
that are present at the final plenary meeting. So to get any document approved by you know the 140 countries present at the approval meeting unanimously often requires that it's somewhat watered down or weaker than tentative. Some... No, no, it's not tentative because the conclusions are high confidence, but it might be high confidence about something that may not be the latest scientific conclusions in a peer-reviewed journal paper. Often, well, first of all, the journals, papers, you need multiple journal papers to get a conclusion reached in an IPCC assessment because the support of multiple studies is required to demonstrate, if you like, convincing evidence to all the governments that this is actually true. Mm-hmm. So, David, I think it's fascinating that, you know, at the same time as the science is becoming more and more understood and, and I guess more solid in, in terms of what you've just described, but you've also said earlier that you've come from a background where your PhD supervisors were really encouraging you, saying, you know, that the key thing here is to be publishing the papers, yet obviously we know that you've invested so much time and energy over the years in communicating with, with the public. And I'd love to hear your thinking on what brought you to that idea, how did you justify the time, how did you explain to people why you were doing that and I sort of can't help but imagine an alternative timeline where you stayed in mathematics and would you have become such a public communicator had you stayed in mathematics or was it because of the urgency of the climate change science and that you wanted people to know about it? Yeah so it's the latter I mean having got involved in climate science when I first got if you like analyzing observational data and trying to understand the links between human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases. I came in way back in 1986 with what I thought was a very clever idea, which would disprove that human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases (laughs) were the dominant factor. Mm. Scientists are trained to be sceptical. And I was already at that time somewhat sceptical when greenhouse gases are increased, temperatures are expected to cool in the stratosphere and warm in the lower atmosphere. And I had this clever idea that if greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide are increasing, we should look for this fingerprint of warming in the lower atmosphere and cooling in the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And I started to look at it because I had a graduate student who'd been looking at temperatures in the lower atmosphere in what are called the weather balloons. And they get temperatures not all the way up to 50 kilometers, but temperatures up to about heights of 20 kilometers in the lower part of the stratosphere. And what he found was, yes, there was warming in the upper atmosphere, but what he was seeing was cooling in the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, we should look at this more in the observations. We should look at all the weather balloon long-term records in the data from 1963, when weather balloons started to be used around the Southern Hemisphere. And unfortunately, my theory that it wasn't greenhouse gases was thrown out or had to be thrown out in the observational data because everywhere we looked, when we looked at this fingerprint of warming in the lower atmosphere and cooling in the stratosphere, it was verified not in every station, but when we combined them all together, it was 99% confident 
that the trends in temperatures in the southern hemisphere where we looked at all the weather balloon sites were due to the increases in greenhouse gases couldn't be due to increases in sunlight from the sun couldn't be due mm. to natural variability I had to change my mind. I had to change my view. And so a conference paper that I'd originally planned to talk about this, which was a very skeptical, how would I say, of this newfangled theory, I changed. The evidence was convincing. Mm. And since I found this convincing evidence that increases in greenhouse gases were so important in the warming of the climate system, I started to realize that communication of this science and the urgency of the problem, because we knew that the increases in greenhouse gases were going to continue as we used fossil fuels to power the global economy. Mm. Mm, that's, a, that's an important realization, David. So you're actually saying you started off as a climate change skeptic, but then you were convinced by the data and you actually had to change your mind. And then you went about trying to convince others of the data. And I suppose there we get into the realm of all of the important communication work that you've done. And I think this might actually be a good point to wrap up part one of the conversation because we'd love to focus on all of that important communication work in part two, the intersection between science communication and politics, also your engagement with climate change deniers. And then we'd love to also get some advice from you to others who might be communicating science in the public sphere. So all of that to come in part two. So to our listeners, we will see you all next week with part two of our conversation with Professor David Caroli. Thanks for listening, and thanks also to our wonderful production team, Stephanie Wong and Stephen Tang for making these episodes happen behind the scenes. And thanks also to you, our listeners, for your support. If you are enjoying these episodes, you can help spread the word by telling a friend about Let's Talk SciComm or even sharing one of our episodes. But that's all for this week. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. See you then.